What is the church? Where did this concept come from? And what does church actually mean? On today's episode of Theology Unplugged, we begin our series on The Church. The church, broad term, maybe a church. Church, let's just start with church, guys. And and let's talk about church for a while. Now, there's all kinds of directions we're going to be able to go, and we can go even today, but I just want to talk about church for a little bit and try to understand what it means when we say church. In in our, our culture, it seems like the first thing that you hear church is something like, did you go to church today? Um, or where do you go to church? That kind of thing. And we associate church with, with uh, certain particular elements in our culture and certain divisions within our culture. And I want to try to break through, guys, and see if we can't, we can't have some fun here. We can't get a little bit unplugged. Just talking about what church is or what the church is. Now, now I'm saying that, and I think I'm probably pre... Uh, this is a preamble to what it is that we need to talk about and the distinctions between church and a church or the church and a church. But let's talk about this for a little bit. Help me out. Whenever we talk about church, this word church, where did it come from? How how important is this this concept of church? But where where did it originate from, Uh, church? Well, I think it originated from Jesus, first of all. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think surprisingly, a lot of people in America think, oh, Muslims go to church, uh, Buddhists go to church, I go to church, we worship different gods. But that's not true. Uh, Buddhists don't go to church. Uh, Muslims don't go to church. They go to mosques. Well, you're, being only, very, you're being very... Only, um, and what is it? Uh, controversial. Uh, yeah. Well, no. So non-inclusive. A, well, no, no. So at unpolitically a big, correct. No, that's not true. That's not true. At a very precise definition, church is is what Christians go to. So you're saying we have ownership over church. Yeah. Christians have ownership of church. Of the word church, yes. So Muslims would never use that word. They'll use the word mosque. So if, if you ask a Muslim, hey, did you go to church today? They'd be like, heck no, I went to mosque. Well, I heard and about a so, Wiccan church the other day. What's that? A Wiccan church the other day. Okay, well, they're misusing the term. <laughs> but I would say generally it is, it is a, only a Christian thing. Church is only a Christian thing. And I think Acts uh, 2 is where I go to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. I didn't hear the word church at all so. there. Well, but it is a gathering of where that is happening. But you've just said so many controversial statements that it's our term, and then you try to prove it by showing something that has nothing That's to do with it. That's because I'm unplugged, dude. <laughs> I don't have to back it up. <laughs> guys, guys, is uh, Tim right? Is church ours? Church. Steeples, stained glass windows, and uncomfortable pews. I think that's probably what most people think of. And uncomfortable people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uncomfortable pews. Um, yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think it's reasonable to say that Christians, in a sense, can claim the word church just simply because of the way it's used in the New Testament. Um, I guess the first uh, reference would be, what, Matthew 18, where Jesus declared that he would build his church. Um, I don't think he had in mind um, steeples, stained glass windows, and pews when he, dis- when he mentioned that. He obviously has a, has a reference to the body, uh, the spiritual organism of the people who have been called out by God's grace and united um, through faith in Jesus. 
Um, but yeah, I think that the, the word church has to be is a distinctively Christian term. And I th- now again, can it be co-opted and stolen and used by others? Can Wiccans say they have church? Yeah, they probably can. Um, in fact, uh, my, my, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that even uh, um, satanic groups have talked about the church of Satan or um, various other kinds of misuses of the term. But basically, we're talking about, if we, we use the kind of the church capital C, we're talking about the spiritual organism, uh, which is the body of Christ. Um, maybe we need to jump directly into the whole universal local church if we're going to make sense of this. Yeah, let's let's do. Let's try to let's try to walk people along because it's. I, I don't think most people have ever been exposed to anything but the local church building, uh, and that's their idea of church. What do you mean when we say capital C? Well, he didn't say capital C. Yeah, he did. Well, yeah, I did. Sucka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was waiting to hear you use that term. Well, I, there are texts in, in Scripture, and I would think uh, Ephesians 3.10 might be a good example, um, where the word church, the Greek ekklesia, is used to describe the totality of God's people, not any particular group, whether in Oklahoma City or Dallas or uh, Mozambique, but the entirety of those who have uh, faith in Christ. They are the universal body of Christ. I think that's what Paul is referring to when he says um, that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Uh, Again, in Ephesians 3.21, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. There are texts such as that, and there's another one uh, at the uh, uh, at the end of um, of Ephesians chapter one, where Paul says that Christ has been made head over all things to the church, and I think he's referring to the totality of believers universally. Uh, so that's what we mean by universal church. Could you say that the universal church is everyone that will be in heaven? Gather like that's you can you can in heaven you can look out and say the church is now here yes and use the capital C term now they came from many different lowercase small c times places locales uh, but the capital C church is wow we're all here yes yes that's how I would understand it now l- let's be fair there are some people who read the New Testament who say that there is no explicit reference to a universal church. They would in- insist that each of these texts that I just mentioned, he's talking about a local church, particularly in Ephesus or in Thyatira or wherever these uh, assemblies are manifest. I, I think there are a number of texts in, in which we are to understand as referring to the global universal body of Christ, all those, as you say, Tim, who will be in heaven. Okay, universal. What's the opposite of universal? Local. Local, universal and local. So we've got two distinctions here. Local church, the universal church, the entire body of Christ. And and, and, uh, those dead too? Those who have gone on? If you're using capital C church, I'd say, yeah. I mean, we're talking just the community of all saints. I may be getting way ahead of ourselves right now, but does that include everybody that is like in heaven? Like Old Testament. Besides angels and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? You are getting ahead of yourself. Okay. (laughs) 
But, but that is a question, right? Oh, yeah, certainly. There's all certainly. sorts of debates as you seek to answer what the church is. People inevitably begin to ask, when did it begin? Does it precede Pentecost? Was it formed at Pentecost? And people will argue about that. And that's only, well, that's only when we're talking about capital C church, because if we're talking about local or universal and local, mm-hmm. there, there's not that much. But if, if, we, if we grant universal church and people are in heaven that are part of the church even right now, then, uh, then inevitably it does come up, which we will deal with later yeah. about so for, for about sure. the Old Testament. Is yeah. David King David a part of the church? Yeah. Is so, Abraham? so for sure, we'd say the church for sure started at Pentecost. Okay. But did it maybe start before that with Old Testament believers? Yeah. Well, and then well, you have to ask yourself if the concept of church, if the concept of church and people of God, as it's been constituted from from the creation of the world, are are synonyms, or if there's subtle differences that we're communicating there to say the people of God has been constituted in different ways, and God is related to them differently. And and when we talk about the church age, we may be talking about God relating to the people of God in a unique way. And here's a passage that might shed a little bit of light or maybe confusion. In, uh, in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, he's speaking obviously to local church people. He's talking to Christians on earth. And he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering. And listen to this. And you have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's interesting. The ESV renders that and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. But it's the same Greek word for church. And so it seems as if he's saying that when we worship, that we are actually joining with the worship that is ongoing in heaven and that those who are gathered around the throne of the Lamb even now are called the church. So in that sense, again, we wouldn't want to refer to the people in heaven as a local church. It's the universal body of Christ. And we, in a manner of speaking, are members of that, even though we are obviously alive physically, they aren't. We're obviously distant from earth as is from as earth is from heaven. So I would think that that, that terminology would give us justification for referring to this universal all believers of all time gathered into the body of Christ. So, well, and I don't want our listeners to miss here. In a sense, as we're trying to figure out what this word means, what is the church? We're talking about its oneness, and that's uh, you know not to sound overly dry, but the church fathers talked about this. Clement of Alexandria said, "I think the most irreducible element of the church is its oneness. That it's not many." It's one, and that's fundamental, and I think Sam's interpretation of Ephesians 3 is correct because when you look at Ephesians 4, Paul says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So we're united by our confession. We're united by our faith in Jesus, and, and its oneness is, is maybe the most fundamental thing we should think about when we think about the church. Hey, guys, J.J.'s speaking, just as an aside, awful authoritatively lately. Yeah, I think he's candidating for Pope, maybe. I mean, that was like... Golly, I, I, let's close the session down. I'm just Kaboom. getting too big, too big for my bridges. Yeah, can you give us a well, benediction? Or? <laughs> you know, but he also, in speaking the way he just did, created a massive problem that we're going to have to address. Nice is, going, that, is that a clear way of saying he was wrong? No, <laughs> I'm not saying he's wrong at all. But seriously, if and I agree with him, there is a, there is a, a, a unity, a oneness. There's one body, one church. So what have we as Protestants done in in our, the multiplicity of denominations and now, local churches. Now, why did you just churches? say Protestants as opposed to everybody else? 
Oh, man. Well, I'm, Come just, on. I'm just trying to account for myself here. I'm not trying to account for anybody else. <laughs> Sam makes a great point. Unlike the Catholics, you know, we have really complicated matters by well, saying, make an saying we're one and yet and, yeah. and, and, uh, being diverse. I mean, people way. listening yeah. to us right now are saying, oh, come on, guys, be real. I'm driving in my car. I'm listening to this, this, this program, and you're talking about unity of the church and the single church. And I just passed uh, First Baptist Church on my left, and right over there is uh, Church of Christ, and down the street is a Second Presbyterian, and over there is a non-denominational charismatic church, and, oh, there's a Bible church. What do you mean one church? You've got thousands of churches and Christians divided along theological and ethical and even political lines. So is it even meaningful to talk about one body? And those that's divi- a problem. We, that's an issue we're going to have to address. And there are divisions inside of Roman Catholicism, for sure, sure as well, and within Eastern Orthodoxy. And so there are different perspectives inside of those, too. We've talked about church, um, let's see here, universal and church local. Those are two terms. So get this down. Universal, local. That's important. Is that the same thing as uh, visible and invisible? When we talk about the invisible church and the visible church? Uh, well, it can be. Um, what we mean by the visible church is, let's go back to my person driving down the street. Let's say it's a Sunday and they pull into the parking lot of First Baptist or First Presbyterian or um, you know Grace Bible Church or whatever. And they walk in and here are several hundred folk gathered together, all of whom say we are a part of this local expression of Christian men and women. You can see us. So we say that's the visible church. But the fact of the matter is not everybody in that building on that Sunday who claims to be a part of that particular local church is necessarily a part of the body of Christ. There may be... Uh, some people who are deceived, some people who are intentionally lying, some people are deluded who think they're Christians, but they're not. Some people who uh, perhaps are on the journey toward becoming believers, but they haven't been born again. So what you see visibly uh, is not necessarily the reality of who, in fact, is saved or unsaved. So the invisible church is uh, all Christians everywhere. So yes, in a sense, it's uh, um, it's synonymous with, with the universal body of Christ. The visible church is what actually uh, gathers in a particular local assembly, but we have to recognize not everybody who's a part of the visible church is a part of the invisible. And maybe, I think Sam's right, maybe a simple way for our listeners to capture that, I think this is right, is when we talk about universal versus local, we're addressing the issue of unity, if there is one. When we talk about visible versus invisible, the emphasis or accent is more on the idea of purity, versus impurity. And so how do we handle How do you know what's what's really the church? And and probably the most paradigmatic description of this in Scripture is the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. And, and in a sense, it's how do we solve the purity problem? And Jesus says through this parable, it's solved by letting the weeds and the wheat grow together until the harvest time. Here's a, here's a good a, a biblical response to your question, Michael. I think 1 John 2.19 highlights this, where John says, He's talking about false teachers. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain become plain that they are not all of us. So while those false teachers were in that local assembly and claimed membership and claimed unity and were perhaps even in positions of leadership, visibly, you would say they were a part of the visible church. They were there. 
But John says they went out from us because they weren't truly of us. I think he's saying they were not, they didn't share our internal unity and commitment to Christ. Visibly, they appeared to be part of us. I mean, people would say, oh, yeah, they're, they're not only part of that local church, but they're actually leaders. Maybe even some of them were elders and pastors. But John is saying eventually their departure was their unmasking. And it disclosed the fact that although they were part of this visible community, they were not part of the spiritual body that is united by faith in Christ. I talked to a pastor yesterday, and he said that he said uh, something funny. He said, not really funny, I guess, but uh, something interesting maybe that pertains to this is that he has a guy that comes to his church, and he's been coming, very interested, been coming for a year or two, and sits up close and listens to everything he says. And then at the end, he says, I hope one day this guy will get saved. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, is, the, is the visible church just the, the idea of everybody who professes Christ maybe goes to church, or is it, is it just everybody who says, I'm a Christian? Well, I mean, I, I think it depends who you ask. I mean, I think the invisible church, we would say only God can see that in a certain sense. You know, I mean, I can't look across a building and say, oh, man, I know that guy's life. I know he is not a believer, even though he professes, because you have no idea what he would be like without Christ. You know, even if there's someone who swears 10 times a day, he might swear a thousand times a day without Christ, you know. And so for us, with our eyes to be able to detect who's a part of just the visible and then who's a part of invisible, I'd say only God has eyes for that. Um, well, so, since you swear a thousand times a day without Christ, how many times would you? Yeah. Hey, I, I've got a beep. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> That's what I got to say about that. <laughs> okay. well, and, and, and not to go too far afield, but there's an, there's an obvious pastoral implication or application from these things that um, it's good for our listeners to be cautious of pastors, especially or people in positions of spiritual authority that are overly dogmatic in their pronouncements towards the eternal state of other believers or apparent believers. Um, you can see it even in John here, you know, that he was, there was fruit evident and he responded to that. He wasn't pretending to read minds or be able to see people's heart, but he made conclusions based on the rejection of Christ and, and them withdrawing themselves from the local church. But there's definitely, Matthew 13 reminds us that there's a sense in which we will never know fully what the invisible church looks like until we see Jesus. Well, and it's because he is building his church. You know, we are able to be his hands and his feet, but he's the one that's that's building it. Uh, he's the head. We're the body imagery that we see in the New Testament as well. Hey, just for the sake of our audience, Sam, I know you're going to say something, but we, I think I know where I'm going, all right? And for you guys. <laughs> Maybe. And we're throwing a lot of puzzle pieces out here on the table, and we're putting little pieces and corners together right now, but I think we'll, we'll start to really see a big picture here and what we're talking about, but just basic definition of the church right now. Sam, what were you going to say? Well, I want to come back to your, your question uh, about the relationship between visible and invisible. Ideally, you know, if we just, if everything was worked out precisely the way we would hope that it would, the, 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 you could place visible church over invisible church and they would match perfectly. You would hope and pray that everybody who identifies with a local church uh, embraces a, a membership in that and professes Jesus verbally and seeks to live their life, you would hope and pray that every single one is also a member of the universal body of Christ. But realistically, we know that that is not the case, that the universal body of Christ is a smaller entity than the visible 
local body of Christ. Um, one passage of scripture that I think brings this out very clearly is in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, okay, now what is he? He's talking about the local manifestation. When you assemble together as a local church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And then he says something stunning. For there must be factions among you. In other words, he's saying some of these divisions are good. Why, Paul? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he's saying when you come together as the local visible body, uh, some of these divisions that have erupted and occurred are really helpful because it, it allows us to see who is truly a part of the body of Christ, universally and visibly in a saving sense, as ever against those who are mere professors who are deluded and who are perhaps the cause of the disruption and the disunity that exists where you live. So Paul is saying when you come together as a church, local body, there are divisions that's not always bad because it enables us to see who's genuine and who's not. So are you saying that Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, those divisions are good because the Baptists are right? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because our listeners might have misunderstood what Sam was saying about First John. When these false teachers left that church, which was possibly in Ephesus, commentators think, it wasn't because they were arguing over whether or not to use a guitar or an organ. They were saying, we don't need Jesus to get to God. Yeah, it wasn't over the mode of baptism. It was because they had denied that Jesus was God incarnate. Mm -hmm. So it was their theological heresy that unmasked them that led John to say, that's why I know you're not a part of us, not just of our local manifestation of the people of God. You're not a part of the people of God, period, in any sense of the, of the term. Same situation in Corinth. Paul is saying, uh, yeah, when you gather together as a church, there are a lot of people there who aren't genuine. They're, 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 um, they're false. Their, their, their profession of faith is merely that, a profession. They don't know Christ in a saving way. The early church said the church was the congregation of the saints and the hypocrites. <laughs> is that what we're saying? Yeah. Un unfortunately, yes. That's well, not what we want. We strive for purity. Is we Sam, is your church pure? Is it the congregation no. of the saints and hypocrites? Too? I wish I could say it, it was, but it is not. The fact of the matter is, although we are becoming increasingly rigorous in our membership process, and JJ is largely responsible for that. He's they're teaching uh, a course, our class right now on covenant membership. Oh, JJ, and we're we, going to talk about that later. We <laughs> ask, yeah, we ask probing questions. We do personal interviews. Um, we ask people to uh, read the statement of faith. Can you affirm this? Can people slip through the grid, as it were, who don't? genuinely believe those things, but can raise a hand, sign a card, pray a prayer, receive communion as if they did. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. I hope they're few and far between. But the, in the final analysis, we're not, we're not ex, ex, expending our energy and exhausting ourselves trying to examine the fruit to such a degree that we can pass a final and infallible judgment. Um, we do the best we can. But sometimes you have to embrace people based upon their profession. Now, if their practice begins to betray that profession, then we'll sit down with them and say, hey, 
you said you believe this. You said that this was true. This is how you're going to live your life. And, and you're living in an utterly contradictory manner. What's going on? But in the final analysis, no, our church is not pure as much as I wish that it were. We don't claim utter agnosticism as shepherds. We don't throw our hands up and say, oh, well, we'll never know. We can't see the heart, but the heart bears fruit. And when it does, we deal with what's revealed. And, and the idea behind all of this is not that we want to keep all the hypocritical, sinful people out of the church and just have, you know, holy, good, moral people inside the church. But the whole, the reason it's a big deal is because what makes you a saint is Jesus, not ourselves, right? And if there are people in your church who are thinking, oh, I'm good just because I'm a member of Bridgeway and that's going to get me to heaven, we are concerned about that because they're not putting their trust in the only one that can get you to heaven. And so they're deceived in thinking that they're good because they're in a building. So be real clear, you're saying that a lot of people listening to this may be part of the church visible, the professing church, the the church that uh, is uh, of the hypocrites, but not a part of the body of Christ, a true part of the church. That's true. We are saying that, and that's why I hope that if they're listening to this program, that they're being convicted and they're being awakened and they're saying, wow, I I need to examine my heart. Do, Do I really and genuinely trust Christ and Christ alone, or am I just enjoying the religious benefits of gathering uh, with people that I know and whose company I love. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.